Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from John Heaney, stunt coordinator on movies including Mad Max Fury Road and Star Wars Attack of the Clones, about becoming the world's first COVID-19 onset safety expert after helping keep Kurt Wimmer's reimagining of Stephen King's Children of the Corn on track in Australia as the coronavirus pandemic swept and Ellen Windermuth, founder and co-CEO of Dutch factual producer-distributor Off The Fence, discusses how the company has adapted to the crisis and is now gearing up for the launch of conservation-focused VOD platform WaterBear Network this autumn. Writer and director Kurt Wimmer's reimagining of Stephen King's Children of the Corn was about to begin production in Australia earlier this year when the coronavirus pandemic struck. Former stuntman, stunt and safety consultant John Heaney, whose credits include Mad Max Fury Road, Star Wars Attack of the Clones and The Great Gatsby, worked together with producers Lucas Foster, Mathieu Bonzon and first assistant director Sean Harner to help keep the project on track, while the rest of the global film and TV industry went into production shutdown. The quartet drew on their experience to set up a new venture called Firm, Film Industry Risk Management offering their expertise and experience worldwide to others aiming to resume shooting under the latest COVID-19 safety guidelines, with headquarters in Los Angeles and Sydney. Heaney is president of the new company and spoke with me from Broken Hill in New South Wales, where he's now helping new Seven Network Endemol Shine drama series Royal Flying Doctors resume production. I'm a safety supervisor and stunt coordinator based out of Australia. I am fortunate enough to be proud owner of the title of the first COVID-19 safety specialist in the world, thanks to working on the feature film Children of the Corn with Lucas Foster and Matthew Bonzon. And I have a background in both feature film and television, uh, stemming from me being a stuntman of now 35 plus years. Some of the films I've had the pleasure of working with and on uh, was Star Wars Super Man, uh, Mission Impossible 2 and Mad Max, the last one. And some of the television series are, are, are more of the local based the medical action dramas. We've worked with uh, All Saints, Doctor Doctor. I'm currently working on a, another medical action drama called the Royal Flying Doctor Service, which is a uh, service that is very unique to Australia. So tell us a little bit about the experience on Children of the Corn and how you uh, developed that expertise in in COVID-19 safety guidelines. Yes, well, when we first started Children of the Corn back in January, it was virtually unheard of. COVID-19 wasn't even on anybody's radar. So we were going through our our pre-production phase in the standard format. And as we got to the end of pre-production, that's when it really started sinking in. This was not only an epidemic that was situated in other countries, it was something that was starting to travel around the world very quickly. Once all the, the systematic lockdowns started taking place, uh, the producers basically came to us and the heads of department. We sat down and had a very serious meeting in regards to what our moves and what our thoughts should be in regards to should we shut down or should we look at moving forward? And in simple terms, we we decided to move forward that we could, the answer was yes, we could move forward. Initially, the thought was, let's see if we can only, if we can get through the next two weeks and can we stay open for the next two weeks? Lucas Foster came to me and asked and said we could do it. And I said, yes, let's just start problem solving. And that's what we did. We started looking at what the World Health Organization was saying, what the uh, Australian government was saying in regards to what COVID-19 was. And basically, I just went and started studying. I stopped looking at the social media side of things. I, I stopped listening to the 
a lot of the press and a lot of the hearsay that surrounded what COVID-19 was and what there were water cooler chats around what people were saying about what COVID-19 actually was. And what we started doing was really studying what the World Health Organization and what larger corporations such as mining and uh, the health industry were doing in regards to staying open. We started studying their protocols and studying what they were doing and how, how they remained operational and could look after the safety of their teams. And we started adopting those protocols and changing them to suit the film and television industry. So what was the scale of the production with, with Children of the Corn? How many people were involved? And, you know, what were the steps that you took uh, initially? It was around 175 people. I think we were dealing with in total on corn. Our initial reaction was to sanitise the world and get hand wash stations everywhere, put masks on everybody as much as possible and start reverse engineering the problem. So looking at all the departments and how the departments really functioned and breaking them down and how to delineate who was who and who needed to be where, not who wanted to be where, who needed to be where. And I think that was the hardest question to ask every department because, as anybody knows, everybody wants to be right in the mix of it. And it's a fantastic way to learn. It's a fantastic way to be under normal circumstances, but under critical circumstances, it's the worst way to do, to do our work. So what we really had to do was go back to the basics and look at the skeleton of how we function as a working set and say that only absolutely essential crew were allowed on set and then basically work rings of handovers from that inner core right out to the outer functions and to the production office. We stopped people coming from the production office. We stopped the paperwork, of course. We, we went into a totally digital world. And where we could, we staggered start times, finish times, lunch times, breakfast times, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It was something we, we just evolved with and we problem solved every day we were working on Children in the Corn. And it changed. It changed as the World Health Organization changed their view on COVID. It changed as each country changed their view on COVID, understanding that we were also being scrutinized by America because we were under the SAG umbrella as well. So while we were writing risk assessments and safety reports and protocols and procedures and plans of action for Australia, we were also sending those straight across to America to get approved by SAG and other governing bodies in America as well. So every few days we were asked to send documentation out to you know, multitudes of governing bodies to get their approval so we could continue working. To what extent did the work that you were doing and, and required to do, did it actually change the story or, or, or the film rather that was being shot? Did different scenes have to be completely reworked or removed no. in some cases? Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, one of Lucas's common catchphrases was, there is no way in God's green earth I would ever shoot a movie like this. It is the worst way to shoot a movie. It is the most ineffective and cost prohibitive way to shoot a movie because we literally changed every day. We had Sean Hanna, who was our first AD and a major contributor to our success as well, coming to me and Lucas every day saying, what, what do we need to shoot? What do we need to change? Talking to our director, who happened to be our writer as well, coming and changing little nuances of the script and looking at how we set up the scenes and how we introduce the characters onto set and where to position them to minimise any risk 
to them and also the crew. It was a constant battle. It was a constant conversation. And we were changing on a day-to-day basis, basically because we this thing hit us right at the very stages of kicking off. So we didn't have the pre-production. We didn't have the foresight that other companies would have now in regards to the preparation of how you put together a schedule for COVID-19 and a script that's friendly to COVID-19. So we were we were definitely learning day-to-day and changing day-to-day on how we proceed. And we're juggling the larger and more critical scenes towards the end because we needed to learn how to function in a certain way to then achieve what we wanted to do in the more critical scenes and the more difficult and uh, dynamic scenes. Presumably a lot of the action was taking place outside, which helped with things. Absolutely. I think that was a, um, it was one thing that was definitely in our favour, yes. And working in and around the corn sort of forced people to stay apart because we were actually li- literally standing in cornfields. So you couldn't get too close to people. And yes, it did help, but still, it's a, still a film set and it's still a working environment that forces large numbers of people to be in close proximity to each other. And we had to figure out how to, to manage that. How did you manage scenes with actors who were required to be in close contact with one another? We, we did a number of things. If they had to be in close contact, we actually did it on a timed process. We really restricted how, how long they had to be together and the action that they were doing, we, we restricted a lot. Again, falling back on how we, we studied other professions, one of the professions we looked at was the medical profession and how come a doctor can work in close proximity to somebody in the same room who has all types of illnesses. Well, we found out that there are certain time limitations or time restrictions that you can work to that minimizes the opportunity for a virus to take hold if you follow the right procedures. So we looked at that, we looked at the timing and we figured out how we could work in that kind of world as well. So we just adapted a time limitation on how long people can be together. Then everybody took a break, separated, sanitized, cleaned themselves, whatever we needed to do. If we needed to, any items that needed to be handed over, we made sure they were all sanitized. Given that you were filming at such an early stage that the pandemic was was kind of sweeping the globe. Did you have access to um, PPE and, and, and masks and uh, all the equipment that you needed? Yes, we were fortunate enough. It was quite crazy. I do believe we paid very high premiums for a lot of our PPE, but we were fortunate enough to have enough contacts that we could reach out to and acquire the PPE. And we moved very quickly in regards to stockpiling what we needed the shoot absolutely and what about testing the people around you and, yeah. and, and the cast we monitored for markers but i from everything that i've read and from everything we believe testing on site only adds to potential exposure it doesn't help you in in stopping the spread of corona all it will do is tell you that somebody's got corona if they have it and if they've got it then you've already allowed them on site the trick is not to allow them on site in the first place that's what we did we we designed systems to ensure that nobody could infect our sites congratulations on being able to to wrap that project and also as you say gaining a qualification in the process as uh, as a leading expert on COVID-19 safety management on sets, you, you use that experience to then launch a new company called Film Industry Risk Management. So just talk me through that and now what you're hoping to achieve with that company. It was Lucas Foster that asked if I'd be interested in coming into business with him and Matthew and what he saw, what we could do in regards to the risk management and the entire overview of safety of a film set. He said he's never experienced that on any of his films and he was quite impressed on how we could manage not only the safety of the crew through COVID-19 but also the safety of the crew on all other aspects in each and every department and that's what we want to do when it comes to what 
film industry management can do for other productions is look at a, a holistic view of how safety operates within a film production or a television production from the ground up, from the production office right through to how your cast work on set and how, how you safely operate your crew in all elements of the production, from the action elements to the most mundane. Each and every moment on set offers its own individual safety and risk situations that need to be managed. And this is what we can do. We can not only risk assess, we can put people on the ground, we can look at the medical side of things, we can manage the COVID-19 aspect of people and all the protocols, all the PPE on set, as well as looking at how to safely manage action on, on a film set. And that's not stepping on anybody's toes that all we want to do is streamline how the safety protocols are put into place to allow all the experts to do their jobs efficiently and safely. Presumably moving forwards now, the industry is going to require on whatever shoot, it, it, I mean, it's a new job that's been created, right? It's the, the COVID-19 safety specialist is going to be someone that's needed on every production. Yes, I do believe so. So we're looking at um, putting together courses for training as well as putting people on the ground to fill those roles for different productions and also consulting and working with production companies to help train people within their organisation to get them up and running as well. It's going to need a wider community. The situation is different in every country. Australia was initially one of the the, the countries which was uh, least affected by the virus and was able to resume shooting uh, sooner than than others but um you know do the same rules apply in every situation and what's the situation now in the country as we're seeing a spike in, in, in cases again in a number of places. In regards to COVID management, COVID-19 or potential any airborne pathogen on set and hygiene on set, I think everything, it's the same everywhere in the world. I think these protocols and procedures need to be put in place and need to be strictly put in place. It comes down to your risk management, the management system that you you put in place and also the people you put in place on the ground. It's, it's a team effort. It's the people on the ground running the show in regards to your safety as well as the procedures the production puts in place right from the beginning. So that is pretty standard across the world, you know, I've worked in many countries. Lucas has worked in many more countries. And the way a film is, is made is pretty much the same, regardless of what country you're in. What we have to do is adhere to the government criteria and work with the governments and the governing bodies who allow us to proceed. And we have to show due course what we intend to do and what procedures we need to put in place for that particular production to mitigate what risks are involved with that production. Each and every state or territory in Australia at the moment is working virtually autonomously, except for special dispensations or special reasonings for people to travel from interstate. However, some of our states are imposing mandatory quarantine and some are not for different reasons. But in regards to the film and television industry, I can tell you that New South Wales is is up and running and it is going very, very well. I'm getting approached every couple of days for a new job and it's the same with a lot of our associates. We are getting approached both internationally and locally to do work at the moment, which is very exciting. And we just have to deal with the restrictions in regards to what we need to do if we need to cross any borders. And it just means a mandatory quarantine for two weeks, 14 days for anybody that we need to bring down. But I'm fortunate enough at the moment to be just inside the New South Wales border and I can basically travel backwards and forwards 
and do my work anywhere in New South Wales at the moment. But due to the world of digital, you can do well quite well in a digital world as well because a lot of our work is consulting. A lot of our work can be done remotely and based on the specifics of the script. So we're not really restricted in the fact that if we can't come to you for any reason, you can definitely come to us digitally. This has been hit hard though, hasn't it? And in Australia, I think um, I think Screen Australia was, was saying earlier in the year that something like 200 productions had been shut down and, and obviously lots of people have lost their jobs as well. I mean, how, how hard has the industry been hit? Very positive signs that things are returning to action, but that impact is going to be deep. Oh, it was. As the rest of the world was, it was absolutely decimated. Children of the Corn was literally the only production to remain open anywhere in the world at the time. So nobody was working and nobody was working for quite a lot of months. It's been terrible for a vast amount of people, but I think it's encouraging to see that so many of the people are coming back and now coming back in force. And we're hearing that there's almost going to be too many productions running in Australia come the end of the year, which is which is fantastic because everybody, a lot of our good friends are in, in Australia are coming back to work. And we just all we can hope is we can do that for other people around the world. What additional kind of um, layers of, of cost and production time does putting these safety measures in place have? I don't like the word cost because everybody looks at the word cost as a negative and unfortunately people throw the word cost around quite a lot when it comes to safety and it's a shame because I believe it should be an investment. It should be an investment in their future. It should be an investment in their crew and it should be an investment into the success of their production and it should be something that is instilled within their crew and their production team right from the start that this is how we invest into your future, helping guarantee that you're going to come to work and go home safely every day. So I don't look at it as as a cost. There will be an increase, no doubt, but if it's streamlined correctly and the procedures are put in place early and integrated, not tacked onto the side, it's a cost that's minimised throughout and carried throughout the entire production. It's no more than what you would spend or invest on a specialist being on set every day. And people do that and have people sitting around doing nothing every day and costing them a fortune. Our systems cost really no more than a specialist being on set every day, but it's a remote specialist that helps you in keeping in touch with what's going on out in the rest of the world, but also in line with needs to be done on set every single day with what is happening in an ever-changing world. Presumably it does, however, extend the length of time that these productions take and also the nature, I guess, of some of the productions we might see moving forwards. What are the types of projects, as you say, that have been coming your way and are shoots just generally going to take longer now? I'm not sure of that, to be quite honest. I, I know people have been saying that and, and a lot of speculation has, has happened in regards to that. Yes, I think we, we took a lot longer in Children of the Corn, but understand that we were all learning every day. You know, we were we were writing the book. We weren't reading it. So we were throwing pages of the book out as we went along saying, well, that would, you know, that's not going to work. That's ineffective. So yes, we there was a lot of time wasted in, in regards to that. But I'm looking at a lot of productions that are moving forward now. And I think there's minor extensions to time. But I think if the time is managed correctly right from the start and the, the conversations had 
and the procedures are put into place, it becomes part of your day. And that's what I keep saying. It shouldn't be tacked on to what you do. It should be part of what you do. And once we adopt this as part of what we do, it becomes part of what we do rather than something, oh, we have to do that now, do we? If it's just part of everybody's job and they adapt to that and are open to that, it won't be an inefficient way to work. Eventually, I don't think it'll take or add a great deal of time to to any production. Does this mean, however, that certain things simply won't be possible moving forwards, however, such as crowd scenes, such as scenes of intimacy uh, between actors, unless they've been quarantined and, and, and tested beforehand? I'm not one to ever say no. I don't think there's room for the word no in, in safety. I, I think what we need to do is problem solve it and we need to problem solve it in discussion. I think everything is possible, done with an open mind and done with open communication with all parties involved. It comes down to problem solving and how open-minded people are to what needs to be done in that regard. I think we'll figure out ways to do everything. I think we are the most innovative industry on the planet and there's no reason why none of what we do can't be done again. We just look at different ways of doing it. So as you said earlier on, you're now working on a series called Flying Doctors. Just tell us a little bit about that show and also, I guess, the differences of putting in these safety measures on a film set versus a television series. Are there any great differences between the two genres? Look, no, I don't think so. I think all the handovers and procedural issues are the same. I think the only thing is, is a, a television series is faster moving. It's much more dynamic. Uh, again, we're working in a remote area of Australia. We're quite isolated from the rest of Australia, so we're not under the umbrella of the strict quarantines of COVID-19. So we're quite fortunate in that regard. However, we are still staying strict to all the protocols and procedures that need to be done. I think it's something that is going to be an ongoing thing. We, we remind crews and the team reminds the cast and crew every day of what needs to be done in regards to their COVID-19 protocols and is vigilant throughout the day on and maintaining those protocols and procedures. It's just something that has to be done. It doesn't matter where you are or what type of series, be it television production, and be it feature film, the protocols and procedures and the team on board need to be open-minded and adhere to what needs to be done. And that's how we succeed. It is a show that requires people to work in close proximity to, to each other. And we've addressed some of those situations already and worked through those problems. And I think we're, we're looking at something that will be quite a success, another trailblazer in regards to what can be done in these strange times. John Heaney from Film Industry Risk Management. Germany's ZDF Enterprises acquired Dutch factual producer-distributor Off the Fence 18 months ago, a move designed to help both companies future-proof their businesses and give the latter's founder and CEO, Ellen Windermuth, the resources to develop a conservation-focused VOD platform called the Water Bear Network. Like most, Off the Fence has had to put a number of productions on hold as a result of the pandemic, and while the company's distribution arm has been doing brisk trade, Windermuth remains concerned about what the lack of industry events will mean come year end. The firm is pushing ahead with the launch of Waterbear this autumn, having secured further funding for the venture under lockdown and set an executive team in place, which will see former sales chief Bo Stamayer return as co-CEO. Windermuth spoke with me about these things and more. We're um, a year and a half after uh, acquisition from ZDF Enterprises, and we were hit like 
all of our other colleagues in the community. We were hit across the bow with COVID. And what that did immediately is it affected two feature documentaries, quite high budget feature documentaries that we're producing, that I'm exec producing. One is about the Pope's encyclical Laudato Si, which is the only document of its kind written in this time by uh, a leading religious leader. He wrote a 140-page document about climate change and about his recommendations on how to combat climate change. And the other film we're making uh, is a film about circular economy. So you can imagine that it wasn't easy to shut down two uh, large productions in full swing and at the same time watch out what's happening with the sales team and with the production team in Bristol, which is run by Alison Bean in, in Bristol. So we had to do a big pivot. We stopped both films and we switched several of our productions that were still being shot to containing more archive. So we luckily had very, very kind and cooperative commissioning editors and broadcasters so that our production output will be affected this year, but not as horrendously as we feared. And uh, not being able to go to MIP and having very limited people going to MIPCOM is, of course, affecting our sales and also the, the behavior of the various broadcasters. So nothing in our projections is any longer predictable. That said, we will, uh, as it looks, finish our year on target, but that as you know, looks one way on paper, but another way while you're really trying to manage teams. And of course, I don't manage teams, I manage managers who are managing teams that are just all over the place working from home or having sick parents or having uh, uh, wives in a different country or girlfriends or boyfriends in a different country. So mayhem uh, probably describes it. And I think that that will persist. So I think we've all gotten used to living in this different way. It's been wonderful for the quality of all of our relationships because it really shows how an industry can come together and how an industry can, in the various sectors, be supportive. Uh, so our, our, I guess our social experience has been very good and, and continues to be very good. Uh, we're slowly resuming production on our two films, and we're basically just shooting in smaller pieces. So we don't do very long back-to-back -back shoots in different locations, but we basically go location to location that has budget repercussions, but we're weathering them. And we basically also talk to other producers and distributors because we're all helping each other. So that, I guess, would be the, the long and the short of how we're doing. And one of the most unique things for me this year was that I was quarantined at home and I had to finish our financing deals on this app on Waterbear because it took two months longer than anticipated, but I'm really grateful and happy that all of our financing came through. Um, and people said, yep, totally. You should totally start this business and it's going to future-proof your current business. And I have had nothing but support on that. Let's just go back to those two films that you talked about. Um, so exactly what stage were they at and, and whereabouts were you uh, filming at the time that the pandemic struck? Well, we had shoots scheduled in Brazil, Indonesia, India, Italy. As you can imagine, we were trying to film in the Vatican, so that didn't go very well. So we were pretty much everywhere that became 
a problem territory. And New York, of course, we had a big shoot in New York. So I would call that a broadside hit. How did you handle that situation and, and how quickly did things escalate? Well, we had to shut down these productions within two weeks and furlough uh, the people. And, you know, that part of it worked really efficiently. I think everyone pulled together and said, yep, this is a problem. We have to stop shooting. We have to bring everything down to just a tiny in-house core team. And that's what we did. And, you know, that's very much thanks to our head of production, Karen Meehan. You said that things are resuming now slowly and that you've been drawing more on your archives as well. How are you going to go about completing these films? Well, we're we're scheduling shoot by shoot very carefully. We've appointed another team to do the Brazil shoot because obviously we can't go to Brazil. So we're working with a local crew to do the work that needs to be done in Brazil. We can go to Costa Rica. So I think we will in the fall. And uh, we'll probably do a China-Indonesia shoot also with a local crew. So we're going forward instead of scheduling shoots back to back, we schedule them one by one. So on the film side, We've basically just created local shoots or piecemeal shoots where possible. On the television side, we're going with more archive. So it's really, you can see there are two completely separate approaches between the feature documentaries and the television. And with the archive, you're right to say we have a sizable archive of our own, but we also work with a number of other companies that have archives. Aside from the uh, production business, which, as you say, is sort of slowly returning, what about program sales, another big part of your business? And, and as you referenced, MIP TV was, was cancelled, MIP Doc, a major event for you, and uh, the year has continued to, to see events fall by the wayside. What impact has that had, and, and how has the program sales side of things changing? Well, I would say the program sales side, it's become more erratic because different broadcasters have to shut down different departments at different times. And when you think that we have over 3,000 clients, it's impossible to say in a nutshell, you know, how each of the territories have adapted and what their pace was to adapt. But because our sales team is quite large and because the sales team basically said, right, I'm going to sit at home and I'm going to have Zooms with every one of my clients and find out what they need. One territory is kind of made up for the other and the results on a whole have remained stable in the first and second quarter. The big question for most distributors is always the fourth quarter, because generally the fourth quarter is by far the biggest quarter for every distribution company. And as it looks, MIPCOM will probably take place, but in reduced form. So that fourth quarter is going to be really telling for most of us with our results. So we're still holding our breath a bit. There's been a, a, a whole flurry of major distributors saying that they're not going to be having any kind of physical presence at MIPCOM. What's uh, off the fence and ZDF Enterprises' position right now? Well, ZDF Enterprises will have a presence at MIPCOM and off the fence will not have a stand at MIPCOM. Some of us might come for select meetings, but we, we do know that ZDF, as our shareholder, whom, of course, we have a close working relationship with, will be able to cover our bases that way. And so presumably that acquisition that took place uh, 18 months ago, has it been a little easier to weather the, the current storm being part of a, of a larger organization? I would say undeniably, yes. 
I've known ZDF Enterprises for probably 25 years, and I've known Fred Berkson and Ralph Rickauer a very long time. So we already had a relationship of trust. We'd done a lot of business together. So it wasn't an acquisition that resulted in big surprises, except the pleasant surprise of having more colleagues to talk to, people to brainstorm with, people to cooperate with. You know, we, we get to cooperate now on a deeper level with Arte and ZDF and ZDF Info. And all that has been really useful. And I would certainly say comforting, definitely comforting as well. And when you look across the, the sector more broadly and the companies that you work with and the um, factual business in general, how yeah. tough is it now, particularly, I guess, for smaller independent players? Well, I think it's tough for indies because they don't have as many live events to get traction on projects that could be a bit of a swing for a broadcaster. So my take is that smaller indies have to stay very lean and be very fast. And if they stay lean and if they are fast, I think they can navigate this crisis quite well, especially if they have distribution programming, if they have rights to programming for finished sales. I think that the larger media companies may be more affected by COVID than the smaller ones because the large media companies have high overheads. And if they're in drama production, then they have severe delays. And if they have resumed their drama production, then I think these companies are looking at much higher production cost because of the COVID protocol. So I think on both sides, if I could choose, I would choose to be a small indie right now over a large behemoth. You obviously work with uh, a broad array of, of clients from broadcasters to, to, to streamers. Have you seen a, a variation, I guess, in the demand from those clients for, for programming? And are they being more acquisitive and, and keener in finished tape? Are others speeding the pace of their commissions even? Well, I would say that broadcasters, while they have been more erratic, uh, have tended to buy more, but just at times where you wouldn't expect them to buy. Maybe slightly different programming to fill in slots that have obviously been opened up because of production that's being delivered late. Streamers, very bullish overall. I think streamers just work on a different schedule and they work on a totally different financial model, of course. So streamers, I think, have been very, very solid. And streaming as well is going to become a major part of your business uh, moving forwards as well with the Water Bear Network. So that, that schedule for autumn, and it's been in the works for a little while now, just Tell yes. us a little bit about the, the background to it and uh, what you're looking forward to in the coming months. Yes. Well, first of all, I'd like to explain what a water bear is. A water bear is a little micro animal also called a tardigrade. And it's one of the most resilient animals in the natural world. So a little water bear can withstand nuclear radiation. He can be shot into outer space. He can live on the bottom of the ocean. And if you leave a water bear in the desert for even a few years, the whole DNA will crumble. But if you go back and just add water, it comes back to life. So I liked very much, and my team uh, also at the time liked very much, this animal to be the, the brand for our new streaming service. What Water Bear is about is really a subject that everyone at Off the Fence has been raised on and that I've educated myself on for 20, I think almost 28 years now, and that is our future on this planet. 
Um, we're interested in science, um, but we're also interested in social issues. We've done a lot of work on programming about the natural world. And the way we're going to launch Water Bear is it will be a free service. It will be an interactive service. And what does it mean to be a, a service about our future on this planet? Besides an obvious emphasis on biodiversity, natural history, science, we've taken the UN Sustainable Development Goals as our parameter. Um, and if you don't know what those are, they are there are 17 goals, values that all uh, the nations that are UN members have actually agreed upon. So you can think about this as a value system of 17 values that all UN nations have agreed upon, which is very rare and, and wonderful. But we think that basing a global service on these 17 values is a very sensible thing. So they include no poverty, zero hunger, gender equality, clean water and sanitation, uh, good health and well-being, affordable and clean energy, uh, decent work and economic growth, climate action, life below water, life on land. That doesn't comprise all of them, but the most important one is the 17th, and that is collaboration. Uh, and Water Bear is all about pulling together all the different silos and places where people are working on a better future for life on this planet. To that end, we have onboarded over 70 different NGOs. So it's sort of unprecedented that we uh, got 70 different NGOs to agree to be on the same platform. Traditionally, they tend to uh, compete for funding. But in our case, we have onboarded uh, people from Greenpeace to WWF to Sea Shepherd, Circle Economy, Africa Parks, Jane Goodall Foundation, and, and many more. And they will all have their own page on our network and they will populate their own page with their own content. So when I describe Water Bear, the front shop window is going to be a mixture of acquired and original content all around the 17 Sustainable Development Goals, but behind the front page of this curated content that the viewer can, can, can stream sit the people that are actually behind all the content, all the NGOs that are working in the field. And you can actually access the people that have done the work to even make the films happen in the first place. So that's a, a, a basic intrinsic difference in the Water Bear Network between this app and other services. And the other thing that Water Bear does is it allows the viewer to really become part of our world. So we've been in media and we've worked with lots of NGOs and we've made lots and lots of films and television series, but we wanted to give the average viewer access to all of this by being able to log on to Water Bear, search for their favorite subject, whether that is circular economy or climate change or giraffes, they can then screen the content that they want to see. But while they're watching, they can connect through to the NGO that has been powering the project that the film is about or different NGOs that are working on the same subject, but in different parts of the world. And from there, as a viewer, you can make further choices. You can say, I'd like to donate to this 
uh, NGO, or I'd like to volunteer and do work in this area. I want to connect with people in this area, or I want to share this content on social media, or I want to buy a, a sustainable merchandise to help a community, or I want to take a trip, an eco-travel opportunity. So there are many, many different things you get to do on Water Bear, which is why Water Bear is quite a mouthful, as I just discovered. Video will obviously be a key component of that. Yeah. Your providing your own programming for this service you're providing third party we are providing our own programming we're commissioning third party programming and we are acquiring programming in terms of feature docs documentaries and short form from all over the world and you say that it's going to be offered for free. So just talk me a little bit, if you would, through the business model. Well, we'd like as many people as possible to use WaterBear. And we'd like as many people as possible to interact with WaterBear. And that means that a sponsorship model lends itself to getting as many viewers as possible in as short a time as possible and really getting the app up and running. We, for, for very obvious reasons, don't want to be an AVOD service because we have to control who the advertisers are. You don't really want to have Shell and BP be major advertisers on the Water Bear Network, right? That would sort of defeat the purpose. And because we've been in the space for a long time, we're, we're curators and storytellers, we still have to be aware of greenwashing and we don't want to facilitate greenwashing. Um, you said that you spent part of your uh, lockdown in, in uh, securing all the investors that, uh, yeah. that you were after. So can you tell us about, about the backers? Well, the backers are quite high-powered uh, philanthropists, and they're, it's a varied group. Most are European, so I would say that's probably what I would be able to say right now. Okay, but you can't give us any names? No. You said you're acquiring programs. Is there anything in particular that you're still looking for? We've acquired quite a bit already. My, my appeal would be to all the listeners who do have programming about any of the 17 uh, sustainable development goals, please let us know. This is going to be an outlet for some of your own programming. Is there any sense that that means that programming will no longer be available to third parties in the way that you've been selling it on? Oh, not at all. It's not changing our distribution uh, ecosystem at all. You'll find when you look at our library, we have between six and a half and 7,000 hours in that library. Uh, we have Smithsonian programming in there. We have WeTV programming in there. We have, you know, the high quality Terra Mater catalog. That ecosystem remains unchanged. We have separate kind of strategy for Water Bear because definitely not all of our off-the-fence programming fits Water Bear. So uh, it will basically, you know, everything is a gradual process. This Water Bear is a separate ecosystem into which some of our programming will go and maybe some of Terra Mater's or ZDIF Enterprises programming will go. But we're, we're acquiring on the merit of the programming, not the company that it's from. So it's easily possible that third-party programming will take precedence over our own if it's more suited to the brand. And we're finding that that is the case. How do you think the pandemic will change the, the, the strategy and perhaps in terms of the programming moving forwards? Because obviously the current situation will have an impact for all of the uh, or many of the subjects that you're going to be covering off. I think it will amplify everything we're already doing. I think there's just more urgency for everything that we're doing. 
And there are some programs that we can no longer acquire because post-COVID, they're no longer appropriate. So COVID has changed people's predictions, it's changed timings, it's changed outlook. So it's changed our, our acquisition strategy a little bit because we really have to look at being about now and we need to be relevant. But at the same time, it's made the, the, the project even more of a passion project for us because we feel that somebody's got to do this. So it should probably just be us. Um, let us make the first step and let's hope that other people start similar projects to you know, get more people connected on the subject. So finally, in terms of um, the company's kind of roadmap off the fence from this point, there's some, some new management changes effort as well with uh, Bo Stamire rejoining the company as well and, and uh, taking a seat alongside you as co-CEO. Yes, he will. So um, at the end of this year, uh, my current co-CEO, Ralph Rickauer, is going to step back in full time to run the nonfiction division for ZDF Enterprises because he has a lot to do. That is a very busy job. And Bo Stamire is going to come in as a co-CEO at Off the Fence that is currently scheduled for uh, January of next year. Uh, I look forward to that very much because Bo and I know each other well and we've worked together many years in the past. I think we worked together for 10 years. Our skill sets are really complementary and he will be joining us based in Amsterdam. So he's moving his family back to Amsterdam from Munich. That will obviously allow me uh, more time on our uh, feature documentary productions and on Water Bear. So it's, it's, it's very, very good news for all of us. And our livers quiver at the thought of having him back, but we look forward to it anyway. Ellen Windermuth from Off the Fence and Water Bear Network. That's all for this episode. There'll be more from the podcast tomorrow. But in the meantime, stay safe and stay up to date with all the latest developments by following C21 online on mobile and social media. Thanks for listening.